Did you know that you can get this same great episode of the Royal Woman podcast ad-free? I get it. Listening to ads during a podcast isn't always my favorite either. But in order to keep the lights and coffee pot on here at the Royal Woman Podcast Studios, they are necessary. I am so grateful to each and every one of my sponsors, but if you yourself would like to skip the ads while supporting the show, consider joining me over on Patreon. Patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast get ad-free episodes starting at Tier 5 on their podcast player of choice each week, plus some other great benefits. Find out more by heading to the link in today's show notes to learn how you can become a patron through Patreon. Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Carrie Munven. Carrie is the co-owner and head shepherd at Laystone Farms, located on the unceded Algonquin Territory in West Quebec. She shares this piece of paradise with her fabulous husband, two teenage sons, 10-year-old daughter, and their city dog, Kaz. Off-farm, Carrie works as a climate policy analyst with a national not-for-profit organization. Laystone Farms was established in 2020 at the edge of the Gatineau Hills, clearly identifiable by the beautiful hillside vineyard. Laystone is also home to 10 varieties of chickens, a sweet flock of southern baby doll sheep, Scottish blackface black-nosed sheep, and their guardian llama, Loretta. It was such a pleasure getting to meet and chat with Carrie and learning all about how they started their farm in the middle of a pandemic. Before we get to my interview with Carrie, let's go over this week's listener review. This week's review comes from One White Cloud via Apple Podcast. This five-star rating and review is titled Comfort and Joy. This podcast never fails to lift me up. Farming can feel so isolating at times and it is easy to become discouraged with a roller coaster that is this farm life. Caitlin does a great job of introducing me to a wide range of women who have provided so much inspiration and comfort for me as a new farmer. Thank you so much for the opportunity to hear these stories. Well, thank you so much for your kind rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. And my friends, if you haven't left a rating and review yet, I encourage you to do so because this helps other like-minded, wonderful rural people get in community with each and every one of us. I also wanted to say a big welcome and thank you to our newest patron, Natasha Kay, over on Patreon. Natasha is joining us at the tier 10 level. So Natasha and the rest of the community members over on Patreon are going to get a special treat because I recorded an extended episode with Carrie. So if you would like to hear 
more from Carrie after this episode, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com and learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon and hear our extended episode with Carrie as well as all of the other extended episodes that I have recorded in the year 2021. There are so many more great stories that are ready and waiting to hit those earbuds. Again, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com and learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Carrie. Carrie, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. How are you today? Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm I'm just excited to be here. I am equally as excited for you to be here because Carrie, I have a lot of questions for you. <laughs> I want to. <laughs> I want to pick your brain and get to know you better for myself and for the listeners. Tell us who you are and how you got your start in agriculture. My name is Carrie Munven, and I am the co-owner and head shepherd at Salm Laystone Farms in the Pontiac region of West Quebec. And it makes our kids crazy when we say this, but the start in agriculture really came when this place found us. February of 2020. It was a quiet, like one of those perfect lazy Saturday afternoons when we didn't have to be anywhere. Everybody was just sort of doing their thing. And kind of out of the blue, my husband went on MLS and did a search for, he did a search he'd never done before. He's a a unilingual anglophone. He hadn't thought living in Quebec was going to be his thing. He found this place. It was the first one that popped up. Within an hour, we were here. We knocked on the front door and said, we'd like to buy some eggs and maybe your farm. And we moved in about four months later. Best decision we've ever made. That timeline blows my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other timeline I think that's really crazy is we had said, both Trevor, my husband, and I grew up in small town, southern Ontario. We had a, we knew a lot of people who farmed. I think Trevor lived on a farm for a while, but his, his father was a police officer, so they didn't farm. That's just where they lived. Um, and we had said, you know, maybe one day when the kids are grown, it might be nice to find a bit of land or, or something. Cause we'd lived, we'd spent our entire married life in the city, starting in Toronto, then in for, you know, 25 years almost in Ottawa. And when we found this place or when it found us, our youngest was eight. So far, far from being through school and, and out in the world on her own. So. That is absolutely amazing. So pre-2020 then, what was your connection to agriculture? Did you have one? What are some of your first memories of, of food and farming? Well, when I grew up, some of my, my father still is about 20 minutes from where he was born and had friends that he's known his entire life. And two of them, brothers, had a farm that we spent a lot of time on when I was a kid, but it was a dairy operation. So they had Holstein cattle. And and when I was really little, I remember going out and, you know, helping to milk the cows or feed cats. I remember bottle feeding calves and stuff. And then almost as soon as I was old enough to realize that that those were actually chores, that those were the things that my friends and their cousins tried to avoid doing. I was like, well, wait a minute, what am I, why am I doing somebody else's? Anyway, and then I, so I didn't do, I didn't participate in it that much. Growing up though, I was always, I mean, knowing where my, my food came from, I always had 
suspicion is the best word, but, you know, I, I, I studied international politics and had a lot of concerns about some of the big food companies and sort of where food came from, how farmers were treated in the global south and that kind of thing. And then as an adult, we often participated in CSAs, so getting our food from farms, actually a number of which are in the region that we live in now when we, when we were in the city. There was a local dairy for a while that you could get glass bottles of milk delivered. And, and so that was interesting to me, but I wasn't, I don't know that I ever aspired to farming. And actually, sometimes I joke that I think I became a farmer because of a, I'm a knitter and I wanted to grow my own yarn, <laughs> which seems a little, yeah, I don't know what it is. I haven't got my first batch of yarn back yet, but that was part of the motivation. And just, and also, I mean, in my off farm work, I work in climate policy. So I've become increasingly aware of sort of environmental concerns and, and what we need to do in terms of caring for the natural world. And that, I think, kind of, kind of drew me in as well. But it, it kind of, I don't know, it, there's a lot of it that just sort of was like, well, that seems like it could be an interesting idea. Like it was not uh, a lifelong dream to to be a farmer. And yet, I just want to do more and more and more of it now. It's addicting, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and I've heard you talk before about your coming to marrying into farming, coming to, and it's really amazing. And I think I'm really grateful too, that I have now have lived the small town experience, the urban experience. So Ottawa, even though it's the capital city, sometimes feels very, it's, it's not a big city like Toronto or Vancouver, I don't think. And now sort of the rural experience. And I feel like there are things that I bring to this experience based on living in the city and even living in a small town a long time ago that helps me. I don't know. I don't want to say do farming better, but just to, I've got a, a wide experience that informs what I do here. Right. I think, you know, and obviously I'm biased because I have the similar experience. I lived in an urban area and then I came rural. But I think what advantage it gives us is understanding of what urban people don't know. So mm -hmm. when I think of it, it's like people who grew up rurally and this is all that they know. And then they question why people in urban areas don't know what they don't know. Well, I can tell you why we don't know, because we haven't been exposed to it. We don't know farmers personally, all of these things. So when we as farmers share our stories, I always think it's great to do it with a tone of an empathetic ear, I guess, because, you know, we don't know what we don't know, and they don't know what they don't know. So why not mm -hmm. just share it in a way of understanding versus educating people in outside yeah. of the industry. So that's just my my rant yeah. and my pet peeve about uh, <laughs> advocating <laughs> for our industry. <laughs> yeah, well, and I found that so many people are just so interested and excited to learn about it too. And I think in if and I think and part of what I think what we've done quite naturally is just share our excitement, you know, and it's like we had our first big event on the farm a couple of weeks ago, and it was actually a farm hop that was led by one of our neighbors, who's also relatively new to the region. 
and he had people come out that had worked with my husband like 10 years ago and we completely lost touch but then they saw we were on the farm and they were curious about what we were doing so they came out and so rather than saying let me teach you this that or the other thing it's really look at this we have chickens that lay blue eggs right and did you know if you look at a chicken's ear you can sometimes it'll tell you what color their eggs are sometimes it doesn't which makes it always not always that useful <laughs> And they were, and everybody's like, oh, wow, I didn't know. And it's just, but it was never, I want to educate you about blue eggs. It was, isn't this cool, you know? And, and these are our sheep, and this is, you know, this is what we're doing. And I think people pick up on that energy as well. I think so too. And I think, you know, when I talk to people from outside of agriculture who knew me before I was a farmer, just explaining to them, you know, how I got into the industry, what I'm doing now, it's it's an exciting thing. And they just think like, how neat is this that they now know a farmer and they have that connection to agriculture that maybe they didn't have before. And like you said, showing them things that you find are exciting and interesting might make them, you know, be excited and interested in learning other things from other farmers. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to go back to when you found your farm. It was back in February 2020, correct? Yep. Okay. okay. So February 2020 to June 2020. Tell us what it was like starting a brand new farm within four months, like a time frame of four months, and also during a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting. There's part of me, I, I'm really glad to have found it and made the decision pre-pandemic. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but it's that it's like, I think it was just, I think it's a sense of this is where we're meant to be, regardless of global pandemic. That said, it was so wonderful. I feel very blessed, very fortunate to have been able to move here during the pandemic. Selling our house in the city was a little bit stressful because we ended up doing that right after the, the pandemic was declared and before anybody really had a sense of what the real estate market was going to do. So that was, I mean, there was some intensity there and there was so much uncertainty. I'm sure you'll remember that in March where nobody really knew what was going on or what was going to happen or how this was going to play out. But to be here then with so much space, I mean, before we moved, when we were working from home in the city, my husband and I walked the same three, four blocks a couple of times a day. And it's a nice, I mean, we lived in a nice area, but to just be out and be able to explore and not worry about how many other people are we going to bump into, you know, all of those kind of pandemic things. What was also really funny is where we are, we have a 10 acre vineyard. It's about 11,000 vines. And we had, you know, some people are like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful one day to own a vineyard? That was never, ever on our list. But we came here and it just felt so right. And we're like, okay, so we have a vineyard. So what are we going to do with that? Well, the interesting thing is with vineyards is a lot of the work in a season starts really as soon as spring kind of kicks in and the plants start waking up and, and all of that. So that usually lands sort of late April, early May. Well, late April, the border between Ontario and Quebec was closed, so we couldn't even come over here. We didn't own the place, but we knew that there was work that had to be done. So we actually ended up hiring two young women who had worked for the previous owners in doing some pruning and, and other sort of preliminary work in the vineyard. So we hired two people that we'd never met. 
to do a job that we didn't understand at all on a place that wasn't ours. <laughs> so that was sort of how we got started. And we came out in June. And last year was a lot of just kind of landing, getting our feet wet. So we also bought a dozen chickens from the previous owners. I think it feels like it was within days that had doubled. And then we're now, I think we're at about 90-ish now with our laying hens. And we had said we would, like, as I said earlier, I got into farming. Maybe I said this before we started recording. I'm a knitter and I love to knit and I really love natural fibers. So the idea of having our own sheep was something that was really attractive to me. And we said, you know, maybe our second summer we would do that. And sure enough, by July, I'd found uh, five ewe lambs that seemed just perfect. And what was interesting is they were from, they were born just down the road from where I grew up in Southern Ontario. So we, we got them and like jumped right into that. And really it was, we arrived and we embraced it. We didn't know a lot about what we were doing or how to, how to do any of it, but we're both, Trevor and I are really curious people. We're also, I think, pretty quick learners. So we just kind of jumped in. And last year was a lot of just, as I said, sort of just landing and getting ourselves organized. I think we started selling eggs right away. And that went well. So as I said, we added more chickens. And then we just kind of leaned in. We've been fortunate this last year that my husband owns his own business with a couple of partners and they've been doing really well. So that's allowed us to invest. But our, our goal really is to, I mean, I want to be farming full time and to make an income from the farming that we're doing. So we've put in a small meeting space that we'll use for, I'll use to teach knitting lessons and other workshops that people can use for sort of an off-site retreat. One of the nice things is we're about 40 minutes from downtown Ottawa, so definitely rural, but also really close to the city, so it's really accessible that way. We've added a lot more sheep. I'm definitely team sheep, Caitlin. (laughs) Oh, and I'm happy to talk more about them. And then, yeah, and trying to get, we did a lot of work with the vineyard. It was interesting. When we first moved to the area, we went to a farmer's market. And one of the beautiful things about small towns and rural areas is that everybody's really friendly and everybody knows everybody. So we went and we were obviously new. and People would ask where we were and we described the spot. And they're like, oh, the overgrown. And that happened two or three times. And by the end of the morning, we were like, okay, we got to do something because we do not want to be known as the new people in the overgrown vineyard. So we did a lot of work, spent a lot of hours cutting the grass last year. But it turns out, actually, I realized that any growing is a lot of, you know, you've got to just maintain, for the vineyard, it's cutting the grass. And for the animals, it's a lot of picking up poop. Like it's, <laughs> it's not particularly glamorous, but really kind of basic stuff. So we did a, put a lot of time and energy into sort of bringing that back. And this year we were able to sell a bunch of our, our white grapes and are well on track to next year start actually creating artisanal vinegar. We decided not to go with wine. That is so cool. I obviously, I, I don't know a lot about vineyards and or what you can make out of them besides wine. So tell us more about the vinegar and uh, <laughs> why you chose to go that route instead of the wine. Well, there's a couple of things. One, we're in a bit of a microclimate here in West Quebec. We're one of maybe four or five vineyards that I know of. Some are more established than others. All of the others, I think, are making wine. And it's. I think it's a couple of things. One, making a good bottle of wine is kind of complicated. There's 
you know, a lot that goes into it. I mean, the grapes are one thing, but then there's a whole chemistry sort of a piece that goes with it as well. The regulation and the administration, because it's alcohol, is also quite intensive, as I understand it. And so, and as I say, there's a bunch of places right here that are, that are already doing that. And because of the climate, we, a lot of us are growing the same varieties of grapes. They're sort of hybrid grapes that are designed for northern climates and mostly out of Minnesota, things I didn't know two years ago. It doesn't feel like it would be particularly straightforward to sort of break into that to be confident that we could produce a good bottle of wine. But and the other thing and that's kind of funny about it is that if you if wine goes bad, you get vinegar. If vinegar goes bad, you just get more vinegar. <laughs> so we decided to just kind of cut straight to that. We're excited to see what we can do in terms of like we're what we're anticipating is small batch artisanal vinegar. We've got some apple trees on the property as well. We just late this summer planted some more and are curious about what we might be able to do to, to bring that together. And the other piece about it, my husband ran the numbers, and for volume, it could potentially be more lucrative to to make vinegar than than wine. For uh, like for some like hardcore wine drinkers, it might seem kind of blasphemous, but it sort of feels like it that makes sense for us where we are. That is very cool. I am so interested in this. And please put me down on your first customer list because I want to try this. I think that is so neat. Fantastic. I just think, you know, to have that that is coming directly off of your farm, not only is going to be super cool for you, but, you know, having these other vineyards in that area that are, you know, already doing the wine thing. And why not branch out and try something different that, you know, Mm -hmm. see what happens. And like you said, if you make vinegar and it goes bad, it's just more vinegar. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. It feels a little less risky that way. So right. uh, yeah. <laughs> Allison Weaver of Allison Weaver, her story, along with her team, have created Navigate. Navigate is a day planner for women in agriculture and rural women. Navigate started as Allison was working in the garden, wishing she had created a garden map. From there, it has flourished, bringing together a community of like-minded women and making connections across the globe. Allison loved day planners, making lists, and journals. She has always been searching for a planner that would incorporate every aspect of her life on the farm housed in one place. After sharing the idea of creating a planner of her own with her daughter, they created Navigate. Navigate has everything from weekly planning, journaling, record keeping, and agricultural household resources. Navigate will be a great tool for your toolbox in 2022. To learn more and to grab your copy of the Navigate 2022 planner, head to the link in today's show notes or allisonweaver.com. Well, tell me more about your sheep. Even though, you know, oh, okay. we're team goat over here, I still like to listen oh, and learn I know, more, I know. <laughs> more about sheep. And I was trying to rack my brain before we got on the phone today. And if I have had anybody on the podcast that had baby doll specific sheep, and 
I don't think I have, and I'm sorry if I have. <laughs> and Team Sheep is listening to me, and they can, you know, pelt me in the comments afterwards. But uh, tell me more about this beautiful breed. You sent me some pictures before we started, and I was looking at them, and they're pretty dang cute. They're adorable. Yeah. And I don't think you have either. I think I've listened to every episode <laughs> more than once. Um, so, uh, and I think I'd remember if there had been another Southdown baby doll. So this is a breed. It's a miniature breed originally from the Southdown region of England. They've been in North America for a long time. In the U.S., for there had been some... So they essentially created a new breed, which which was just called the Southdown, which is sort of a standard size sheep. So these guys are now sometimes referred to as baby doll Southdowns or also the old English Southdown because they're the, the miniature breed that at the tallest they get is 24 inches at the shoulder. So they're, they're really easy to manage. They're pulled sheep, so no horns. They're very woolly. They actually mine are probably due for haircuts on their faces right now because they're the fleeces grow all over the face, down their legs. Like they're they're very it's a short, dense wool. And as I said, my initial interest in sheep was the fiber. I'm definitely definitely in it for the fiber. But when we before we moved in and we're starting to try to understand you know, we did Google searches like so I bought a vineyard. What do I do next? But one of the things that we found was that there were some vineyards in the Niagara region and also in Prince Edward County in Ontario that had the Southdown baby doll sheep. And part of the reason they work well in vineyards is because they don't, they're not like goats that, as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, would climb and reach and go up on their hind legs and kind of eat whatever they could get to. These guys always stay on all fours. Most of the time, anyway, they re- they eat what they can reach. So if the if the grapevines are maintained the way they should be, which means that nothing is really lower than about three feet off the ground, these guys will eat under the grapevines. They'll poop all over the place. So we're fertilizing at the same time and help that way. Their wool, on paper at least, and I haven't got. Uh, I don't know. Still learning about this too. Is comparable to merino, which among knitters is one of the most sought after wools because it's something that you can wear like it's not a not a rustic not a scratchy wool but you can wear it like it's good for garments next to skin kind of stuff for scarves and shawls and sweaters and that kind of stuff but their fiber is a lot shorter so it was a little tricky to find a mill that was able to process it but I'm super excited to get that as well and the other thing is they're naturally really beautiful shades. I mean, technically, I think they're just white and black. So they're like a really nice cream. And then, but the quote unquote black ones are, I've got one that's really dark. There's like chocolate brown, kind of a medium brown. I've got one brown sheep that I named Sandy because he's just kind of got that kind of tan color to him. And we actually got a ram, our first ram this year. Just went in with the girls last week. So we'll see how that all turns out. But he carries what's referred to as the spotted gene. So there are some Southdown baby dolls that have a spotted pattern, and they are super cute. These sheep are sometimes referred to as like the teddy bears of the of the sheep world because they do they are little and they have these beautiful woolly little faces. Yeah, and I just I just love them. And as a newcomer to sheep, I'm grateful that I started with a smaller breed because. They're really easy to manage. And, you know, last year when I was like, oh, I guess I've got to trim their hooves. So I'll figure that out. And the fact that I could 
pick them up and and do what I need to do was really helpful. And then this summer, also in the category of maybe one day, we had said, I'd be really interested in the, and this might not have even been in the notes that I sent you, but the Valley Black Nose, which is a Swiss breed that has actually been kind of deemed the cutest sheep in the world. And they're a long wool sheep with black faces, black kneecaps, black hocks, and just stunning. Those ones, though, are brand new in North America. So there are only a few places in the U.S. that now have purebred Valley Black Nose. In Canada, there's, and it started in the U.S. as well, but there's a breed-up program where you begin with a different breed that has some of the similar genetics. So ours started with Scottish Blackface and then with artificial insemination, you breed in the Valley Black Nose. There was a farm that I was following in southwestern Ontario that was relocating, and they had four sheep to use a ram and a weather that they were that they needed to rehome because they were moving to the U.S. And so we got those guys in September. So we have two F1 U's, so they're 50% Valley Black Nose, and we've got a vet coming at the end of this month. And one of my projects last week was, you know, going through the semen catalogs, <laughs> again, not exactly what I thought, you know, what are you doing tonight? Yeah, I'm just, I just got to find myself some semen. And so we'll, we'll breed up and hopefully have some F2s, hopefully use in the spring, and we'll, we'll go from there. I think it'll take us then another three or four years before we get to, you know, 98 or 99% Valley Black Nose. That's another one to Google. I should send you some photos of those guys too, because they're... They're kind of next level. Well, if they're voted the most cute sheep in the world, then obviously (laughs) that (laughs) is worth a Google. So Now, what's interesting, though, is they're bigger. And I think because the Scottish Blackface as well are bigger than the Valley Blackness. Because we have one of ours is an F2, but he's a ram. So that's kind of the end of the line. So he's 75% Valley Blackness. And he's quite a bit smaller than the others. But I, I still have a bit of work to do to figure out some of my my management, because those guys, I can't catch them the same way I can the little uh, southbound baby dolls. They're they're as big as I am. Well, that is so neat that you've been able to incorporate your love of knitting and, you know, your Mm -hmm. love of the environment. Because if we're thinking about environmentally, you are able to use your sheep in your vineyard and use Mm -hmm. their manure and, you know, the carbon sequestration through their wool and all of these things, like you have basically made it a full circle of on your farm of all of the things that you love. So that is a connection that I've been making over here that I just think is so neat. Oh, I, yeah, we, we love that too. And when we started thinking about, like once we made the decision to move, but even before we moved, we were starting to think about, okay, well, what do we, what do we want to do with this? I mean, I said we kind of came, we just sort of jumped right in, but we did spend a lot of time talking about sort of what's important to us and what do we want to to sort of bring to this. And we talked about a bunch of different ideas or concepts, sustainability and beauty and sort of usefulness. But the one that we kept coming back to that kind of brings a lot of that together is nurture. So I said earlier that when we didn't set out to buy a vineyard, but when we got here and it was here, we're like, okay, so let's learn about what this is and how we, how we can nurture it and how 
And also, it's interesting because we talk about a lot of it is about nurturing the land, nurturing the plants, nurturing the animals. But that also connects to nurturing community and that whether that's sort of our local community here or, as I said, bringing people out from the city to just that don't but have a lot of opportunity to get out into nature, but to, you know, sort of be out here. But with that, I think we've put down, I think, 210 metric tons of organic compost over the vineyard over the last year and a half because we're, we have a lot of clay where we are. So there were some areas where the, the vines weren't growing very well. So that was part of it. But then, yeah, everything's kind of, yeah, I think in nature, everything is kind of circular and we're trying to sort of lean into that. So if I've got used bedding from the chickens or the sheep, we find places that we can use it in the vineyard. And then because it was the overgrown vineyard, there's a lot of long vines that we're using to make wreaths and other things that we can use or can be sold. And even with building materials, I mean, we had, well, there were some things on the property that were pretty run down, but when we took apart an old deck, we've salvaged all the wood that was still in good shape and just made it the next size down in terms of lumber. And, and so we can use that again and have had a lot of fun being really creative with what, how do we, how do we kind of upcycle and, and even the building that I'm in now that we built this summer, the inside on the walls, it's all barn board that we got from a, a place across the road that salvages old barns. So that piece is really, really important to us. And so, you know, a lot of it is, okay, what do we, how can we nurture and how can we integrate the different things? that we're doing. For sure. I love that. And you are speaking to the upcycling queen, because let me (laughs) tell you, you, (laughs) if I find anything laying around here, it's like, what can I use this for? What can I build with this? And when I say, what can I build with this? I mean, what can I commission my poor father (laughs) to help me build with this? (laughs) Fun fact, the beautiful garden boxes that I built with my dad this past spring going into summer. They are old corral boards from the feedlot. And let me tell you, these boards are so beautiful and they are so crooked. (laughs) There's not a straight board out there. And I think the screws in these garden boxes are at least 12 feet long. So... There you go. Yeah. But, but, you know, I didn't have to buy wood during the pandemic when wood prices were, you know, through the roof. So (laughs) that was my win anyways. Yeah, we did buy some wood. So (laughs) that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, and even that, I mean, we have found, I mean, and again, I think part of this might be like, we went from like a 50 by a hundred foot lot in the city to 25 acres. And it's like amazing what we can find, but there's been so many things like, I built a sheep run with my sons this summer or spring, I guess. And all of the fence posts and one roll of fencing were just like in the woods. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so finding a second roll of fencing to match the first, that was a bit of a challenge. But it was amazing. Like, I was just like, and then it was like, okay, so we're going to build a fence. And this is where I find there are things that come up as new farmers. One, instruction guides for anything, they're all written for like the fourth and fifth generation farmer. They assume a base knowledge that when you're brand new to it, you don't necessarily have. I found that with uh, putting in fencing and grounding rods. Nobody, there's no good at, anyway, I figured it out. I now have electric net fences that actually hold the charge and that's good, but it was a bit of a struggle. 
But when we were putting up our permanent fencing, it's like, okay, so we have a tractor, we have a post hole digger. So the first question is, okay, how do we attach the post hole digger to the tractor? And then how do you, then how does it work? And how, and it's stuff that, I mean, we can now put in fence posts like nobody's business. But at the beginning of the spring, when we'd never done it before, it's like, how does this work? And then, and you also learn that when you're in decent soil, it's quick and easy. And when you're in clay, not quick and easy. No. <laughs> anyway, those are some of the, some of the adventures that we've, that we've had there. But. For sure. So Carrie, you had such a quick turnaround time from finding this land and moving to this land. What advice do you have for anyone who has yet to find their spot or their land? Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if our well, do you know what? Follow your gut, you know, just we had looked at property in the past, we had talked about all kinds of different scenarios and then we'd like overthink them, right? It's like, well, what about this? What about that? And nah, nah, nah. and when this place when we found this place, it was like, yes, this is it. And it ended up being that there were a lot of things we had to jump through. Like there, because we were moving from out of province, there were, we had to get permission from the Quebec Agricultural Commission to own land. And we had to, you know, sign an affidavit that we were not going, that we were going to continue to use it as agricultural land. And that process took longer than it did for us to sell our house. So there was a moment where we <laughs> had sold our house in Ottawa and weren't assured that we were going to be able to come here. Dealing with the school system change from Ontario to Quebec also presented some challenges. Nothing insurmountable, but especially for the middle kid who stayed in English to get the, the language exemption exemption and all that. But at the end of the day, I think it's follow your heart, trust your gut, and, <laughs> and jump in. I mean, and again, I, we're, I know we're really fortunate. Not everybody can sort of make this kind of kind of jump, but I think that a lot of what, a lot of the good that's happened here, I think has come just because we're, we're living the life we're supposed to live. And that might sound a little airy-fairy, but that's, that's how I see it. Well, from what you've said and what I've gotten to know through our conversation is I think one of the benefits for you, Carrie, and your family is that you've come to this land and you have a curiosity about it and you're curious about learning new ways and new ideas and all of these things of how to do things that work for you and that might be different. Mm -hmm. So I think that for me shows me that you're going to be okay because I honestly think <laughs> curiosity comes before confidence. And if you're curious about enough things and you try enough things, then you're able to learn which way is going to work the best for you. And it might not be you know, what works for your neighbor or what works for mm -hmm. somebody else, but it works for you. And I think that's kind of the beautiful thing about this life and this community, I guess, online and through agriculture is we don't do things the same. And that's okay, because at no. the end of the day, we're all producing food and fuel for the world. And however you choose to do that is, you know, what works for you. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can add another thing to that, one of the things that has been really spectacular is the community. Like they're just, people are so willing to help 
And I think we've provided a certain source of entertainment <laughs> to some who have been doing it forever. And they're like, because when, when there's things that we haven't been able to figure out uh, or, I don't know, trying to decide how much hay our animals need or what we need to buy or any of that. But people have just been so generous with their knowledge and their help. And that, that too, has just been really fantastic. For sure. So is there anything looking back now that you would have done differently over the last 17 months? Oh, <laughs> that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks, well, we should have like planned things out a little bit or been a bit more systematic about, but no, <laughs> I think, yeah, I may have shifted the order of a couple of construction projects, but nothing, nothing substantive. Probably should have confirmed that our kids needed to switch schools before telling them that they could stay in school in Ontario. <laughs> but um, turns out you have to pay out of front fees, which totally makes sense. But no, I, I, not really. No, that's good. But honestly, it goes back to being, <laughs> you know, curious about trying things and doing things differently. And I'm sure things, you know, that you've tried in the last however long might not have worked out as you planned. But you know, you found a different way and you pivoted and you're here today still with healthy kids mm -hmm. and healthy animals and a farm. <laughs> yeah, I know it's amazing. Well, and it's funny because actually I didn't mention earlier the, um, the four Valley Black Nose came with a guardian llama, Loretta, and she's hilarious. And it's interesting because when you, when you say 17 months, there's a part of me that still kind of goes, oh, a couple of weeks ago, I was usually uh, Trevor does the egg delivery into the city. And a couple of weeks ago, I was doing it. And I ended up having coffee with a neighbor down the street from where we used to live. And I've been in there a million times, but hearing myself talk at that counter and talking about, you know, Loretta the llama, it was so funny because it, it, it was kind of indicative of how much my life and our lives collectively have changed in the last year and a half. But it's, no, it's so, so good. Even our teenagers, who we have two teenage boys who were a bit more apprehensive about the move. I don't know that they're, you know, 100% on side, but they, I think they're starting to see how much opportunity there is in, in living here and being here and having the experiences that we are able to have here. For sure. Well, I just want to take you back and maybe stroke your ego a little bit more for, you know, the 17 <laughs> months thing. Because Carrie, you sent your information to me. So for those listeners who don't know, I do have a form on my website, wildrosefarmer.com, where if you yourself would like to nominate yourself to come on the Rural Woman <laughs> podcast, or if you want, you know, to put another woman's name forward, Carrie sent me a message. This was back in March of 2021, sharing her story about herself. The question is like, please tell me about yourself and your egg story. So she did. So I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, wow, their farm sounds really cool. And then when you get to the second question is, you know, why should you be on the podcast? And this is where I ask you to toot your own horn a little bit. But, you know, near the end of this, it says, you know, by the time you're reading this, this will be our second summer in business. And I was like, are you kidding me? You've done all of these things <laughs> in this past 17 months. So I get like, I just want to stroke your ego and say congratulations, because this is a lot of change for you and your family's life. And for what you've accomplished in this past 17 months and having a flock of sheep and Loretta, like what a great name for a llama, like that <laughs> is a yeah. lot of change. And I don't think we ever 
ever give ourselves enough credit for the work that we've done or the changes that we've made. Because frankly, for me anyways, change is really hard. And to listen to myself talk now versus, you know, even when the podcast started in March 2019, or when I got married and started sharing my story online, like back in December 2016, you know, we've gone so Mm -hmm. far. And I think this would be a benefit for us and everyone listening to sit back for, you know, 10 minutes on a Sunday drinking your coffee and just think about how much we've done, you know, as women in agriculture and as farmers and as ranchers. Like, we don't have lives that are similar to an urban life. I'll just tell you that mm-hmm. now, right? So there are so many, <laughs> no, it's true. right? There's so many factors outside of our control. And at the end of the day, you know, when you lay your head down on the pillow, just take a minute to pat yourself on the back because this life isn't easy all the time, but it's super rewarding. So taking that time to mm-hmm. think about what we've done and for you to come on here and reflect on your story and to share this story with everyone. Like, I, I just want to say bravo to you and your family for making this transition because it's major and it's huge. Thanks, Caitlin. That's really kind. And I was, it's funny. I felt I was a little bit surprised when I heard back from you because when I, because I've been, I'm so new to this, there's part of me thought, well, maybe I don't, like I haven't earned my spot yet, or I need to wait till I've done this for a few years. But one of the other things that I realized is the number of people that say to us, oh, that's my dream, or I'd love to be able to do that. And my hope is that in sharing my story, there might be somebody that's been kind of going, oh, what do I, like, These, I, I need to get everything lined up before I can do that. Or, or, or they're like on the fence about, <laughs> sorry, fences are a big <laughs> issue here. But, um, my hope is that somebody else can hear that, that what we've been able to do and that they can do it too. Yeah. So I'm thrilled for the opportunity to speak with you and I'm really grateful for your encouragement and your support because yeah, we're, there's still a lot that we're, we're figuring out and yeah, we'll have our first lambing season in the spring and I'm not quite sure what to expect with that, but, but we'll go with the flow. For sure. Well, you and I can experience lambing and kidding for the first time together because spring. That's right. You've got you you breeding your goats, right? Yes. Yeah. For the first time. So we will be <laughs> in kidding and lambing season together, girlfriend. We will be learning as we go. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> Carrie, it has been so wonderful chatting with you today. I am just honored that you shared your story here on the Rural Woman Podcast with all of us. My last question for you is, what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? This is one, I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, I've listened to every episode of your podcast. I've been so grateful for the stories and actually the other farmers I've been able to connect with through your podcast. But every time I heard you ask this question, I thought, I don't know, there's this, there's that, there's so many things. And it finally occurred to me the other day because I knew you, I was fairly certain you were going to ask this question this morning. And I think for me, at the end of the day, it's the connection to nature. It's that my, my lifestyle now requires that I'm outside every day, that I'm interacting with the animals, that I'm mindful of the weather, that I'm, you know, thinking about ways that we can enrich the land and, and as I said earlier, to nurture. But for me, it's the, it's the groundedness 
it's the, I don't know, I'm a better human being living on the farm. And I I mentioned briefly the climate piece earlier. And working in climate policy, I found in the last few years can be really, it can be really stressful if you sit too long or too fully in the realities of what's before us. And of course, that's been brought to light in the last couple of weeks with all the flooding in BC. But for me, you know, I know that, you know, having sheep or growing pumpkins or having vineyard is not gonna, not gonna solve the climate crisis. But being grounded in this place and being nurtured by this land and these animals. And I think that's it for me. It's the groundedness and the connection and the joy that comes from that. Well said. That was beautiful. Good job. You nailed it. (laughs) As the TikTok kid said, you you understood the assignment. So you came. I understood the assignment. Good, good. (laughs) Carrie, for the listeners who would like to connect with you online, where can they find you? We are on Facebook and on Instagram at Laystone Farms. So it's L-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E Farms with an S. And yeah, those are our, our places. I know some of your previous guests have said that you absolutely must have a farm website. That's in the works, but there you go. Perfect. And I will link those in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Fantastic. Carrie, thank you again so much for sharing your story here on the Rural Woman podcast today. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Caitlin. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman podcast. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producer, Sarah Reedner of Happiness by the Acre, and to my editor, Max Hofer. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can connect with me on social media using the handle at wildrosefarmer on all platforms. If you love the show, make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts, plus share it with a friend. We'll see you next time. Caitlin Dubin, the host of the Rural Woman podcast, and Bev Ross, host of the Joy Farmer podcast, have teamed up to create Positively Farming Media. Positively Farming Media is a podcast hub that connects and cultivates growth-oriented farm and food storytellers. We host a mastermind mentoring group that fosters connection and collaboration between podcasters so you no longer have to produce your show within a silo. Each month in our member-only online community, new learning modules are released that are designed to increase your show's quality, listenership, and advertising opportunities. When you join today, you'll have access to the current month's modules and our previously released modules so you can start growing your show right away. Learn more and start building connections to fellow podcasters in the food and agriculture space at PositivelyFarmingMedia.com.